0: With DJ Tequesta, your favorite 70s funk history podcast. I'm DJ Tequesta, a music head, historian, Haitian, and big-ass nerd. This podcast will explore the different 70s funk scenes in cities across the United States of America. If you love music and history, you've come to the right place. For each funk scene, we will talk about the indigenous history, who the black women were, the best songs to smoke to, and more. Each episode comes with a playlist made by me, DJ Tequesta, on YouTube and Spotify. You can find the playlist in the show notes or search DJ Tequesta on YouTube and Spotify. So sit back, relax, because it's time to get stank, y'all. Take it care. Seattle, what up? Just two days after getting into town, 17-year-old Ray Charles would meet 15-year-old Quincy Jones in the Seattle nightclub, a star-crossed night that would change the future of the musical world. Ray, RC at the time, found work through the Black Musical Union AFM Local 493. But before we get to that, we gotta go way back. The region we call Seattle is the territory of the Duwamish people, with the Suquamish and Muckleshoot peoples not too far away. These folks have been living in the region for over 10,000 years, and of course, had complex societies. The societies were highly satisfied and engaged with their regional neighbors through economic trading and warfare. An important matter of the cultures in the Northwest, specifically, was slavery. Now y'all know, I love attributing terrible things to the colonizers, and I can't blame them for this one slavery is not unique or local to turtle island africa or europe there are and have been multiple forms of enslavement and it is not for me to say if there was any less violent forms of slavery as all forms of slavery are violent the manifestations of slavery were specific to each people and diverse slavery was often a sign of high levels of stratification as ownership of slaves was reflective and symbolic of material wealth the primary distinction though is that enslaved folks under European rule were commodified in a global pigmentocratic economic system unseen in any other time in history. It was noted that Chief Seattle himself owned five to eight slaves, and that enslaved folks were important in the economic outcomes of the tribes of the area. Another matter is language. The city of Seattle is named after the Chief Seattle. His name is spelled S I A H L. The name is tricky because many of the sounds of the Duwamish language, Luschwitzid, are not congruent with the sounds of English. So I'll do my best to differentiate when I'm speaking about Chief Seattle and the City of Seattle. Alright, back to it. A smattering of settlers have been slowly making their way to the Pacific Northwest of Turtle Island, and it was in the early 1850s that there was enough folks to establish a town site and local sawmill business. It was said that Chief Seattle was peaceful to the settlers and did his best to aid in their survival, including warning his settler friends when an attack was being planned. With direct parentage from the Duwamish and Suquamish people, he would be the one who guided his people through their crucible with the violent settlers. Chief Seattle would stand his army down during the ironically named Battle of Seattle in 1856. This would be a major battle, pitting indigenous folks versus settlers. Chief Seattle would be one of the signatories for a treaty that would dispossess the natives of at least 54,000 acres of land, with concessions never honored by the European colonizers. By the time of his death in 1866, Chief Seattle would live long enough to see all indigenous people banned from the city of Seattle, many long homes destroyed, and the forests decimated by the logging industry. Through it all, the indigenous peoples of Seattle would continue to persist and resist. In 1970, indigenous activists would occupy a former military fort in the Magnolia neighborhood of Seattle, culminating in the Daybreak Star Cultural Center opening in 1977. It would be the first time public land was officially dedicated for Native people's use in Seattle since the city was incorporated in 1869. And in 2009, the first Duwamish Longhouse was built in West Seattle. Over 115 years, since the last one was burned down by violent white settlers. Even with those victories, the empire persists in its brutalization of Seattle's indigenous population. Seattle has about 15,000 indigenous peoples, about 1% of Seattle's population, but about 10% of Seattle's unhoused population, with the rate on an increase. Indigenous people of Seattle have the highest rate of being unhoused of any racial or ethnic group in the city. To truly understand the relationship of the state with indigenous peoples, the logo of Seattle Police Department contains an Indian head as a target. For all of its history, Seattle is and has been a violently segregated city, fully committed to white supremacy and the exclusion of those considered not white. To say anything contrary would be an inaccurate lie designed to obfuscate the true nature of the colonial regime we witness before us. The words you left unsaid are spinning in my head, so baby, please. I really need to talk to you, yeah. yeah to let us you know what I've been going through, hey baby. When Ray Charles came to Seattle. It was the Black Musicians Union AFM Local 493 in the Central District that got them started. To talk about the Central District and Local 493, we need to get into a little history of the musical union. The first Musicians Union started around the 1860s in New York City. The first Musicians Union in Seattle was the Musicians Association of Seattle, American Federation of Musicians, Local 76 in 1898. Like almost all unions across America at the time, that represented the interests of white workers. One of the earliest recorded labor conflicts was when the union called for a formal strike in 1898 when local theater owners were underpaying wages to the house bands. When white labor united, so did white management. The theater owners would get together and form their own little organization called the Seattle Order of Good Things. They colluded to fire each theater house band and replace them with one piano player. The Seattle Order of Good Things eventually changed their name to the Fraternal Order of Eagles, which eventually became the largest such group in the nation. Beef between management and musical artists would spark up in future years, and unions would be key in bringing both sides to the negotiating table. The first few free black folks, like Manuel Lopez and Sarah Gross, arrived in Seattle in the 1850s and 1860s. Due to racist attitudes and policies, much of the black population would be in the Central District. By 1920, there were about 3,000 black folks in Seattle and a strong musical community. Many of these musicians would attempt to join Local 76, but they were hella racist and would only accept one black musician in 1914. So the black musicians would start their own union in 1918 as Local 458 and its founding formulation in 1924 as Local 493. Throughout its existence, the white union Local 76 would attempt to suppress the organizing efforts and profits of Local 493. Some of the early founders of Local 493 included pianist Gertrude Harvey Wright, Virginia Hughes, Mrs. Austin, and Edith Turnham. Black women members were consistently a minority within Local 493. In 1925, there were 55 black union musicians with black women making up about 10% of its membership. Even while the union was formally headed by black men, the women members were instrumental in the survival of the organization. Many of the female members, wives, and partners of the members provided financial support for union, as black women had a slightly easier time getting employment than black men, according to Elizabeth Wells, wife of local 493 president Gerald Wells. Local 493 would reach its peak membership in the 1940s with about 150 members, while Local 76 peaked at about 1,200 members. Local 493 was something of a rainbow coalition, now including Asian, Filipino, Hawaiian, Latino, and a handful of white musicians. Up until the 1950s, Local 493 would hold day meetings at Local 76's headquarters, but they were banned from socializing there. So in April 1951, Local 493, with its 83 members, moved its headquarters to 1319 East Jefferson Street, creating the Musician's Blue Note Club, or the Blue Note. The Blue Note served as Union Headquarters, a private nightclub, and a place of camaraderie. The club offered space for all-night jam sessions, a big factor in providing hands-on education for dozens of up-and-coming players. A very important thing to know about Seattle is that this used to be a -a seven-night-a-week town. With over 20 live music venues, places like The Rocking Chair, the Black Elves Club, and the Black and Tan all feature some of the best live music. Many of these clubs were down Jackson Street and 23rd Avenue in the Central District. Throughout its existence, Local 493 would try multiple times to integrate with Local76 for increased bargaining power and economic access, but without success. It wouldn't be until 1958 that non-white musicians would be formally allowed into Local 76. The agreement, though, would mean that the Blue Note would be sold and no longer serve as headquarters. For as much was gained with integration, so much was lost. They had to give up the clubhouse, which meant a centrally located meeting place was lost. The camaraderie, fellowship, and community that was lost when the Blue Note closed would never be regained again. And while there are many promises made about better conditions, like many promises of integration, the benefits never materialize for black workers. In December 1994, Local 76 would change their name to the Musicians Association of Seattle, Local 76-493, in an effort to better reflect the history and contributions of black union members. And at its peak, the Central District would be close to 80% black in the 1960s and 70s with big increases in the 40s and 50s due to thousands of black folks migrating to Seattle to work in World War II defense industries. However, over the past 50 years, due to continued racism and gentrification, the black population of the Central District has dropped to under 15%, with a lot of folks moving to Tukwala and Kent. But the folks from the Central District are still fighting and make some headway the Africatown Community Land Trust of the Central District just opened the Africa Town Plaza Center in February of 2022. Located at 23rd and Spring Street, the plaza will provide over 100 apartments to families, host public art projects honoring the legacy of Black families in the Central District, include a retail space for local-owned Black-owned businesses and a community space for use by residents. But while Black folks are about 6% of Seattle's population, They're about 30% of the unhoused population, having the second highest unhoused rate after the indigenous peoples. For context, Seattle is 60% white and they make up 40% of the unhoused folks. Much of Seattle's history and current status has wisdom for us. In many movement spaces, the mythical white working class is presented as a population that has potential for evolution. Seattle teaches us that the white working class does not have a critical mass of people who believe in class solidarity. Which is to say, as we approach resolutions for matters like homelessness and worker exploitation, we cannot get to the root of the matter without resolving the questions of capitalism and colonialism. I don't Now that we set the scene, let's get into the music. It's time to highlight different songs and artists from the playlist that capture the different sounds and themes of 70s Seattle. While known for its grunge scene of the 80s and 90s, Seattle has a rich legacy of black music. Seattle has always had lots of talent, but there were no successful laborers catering to a black audience. In fact, there were very few, I counted one, full-length albums recorded from this time period. Due to its isolation, Many performers will move to Los Angeles or other cities to gain notoriety, two of them being Jimi Hendrix and Kenny G. James Hendrix, or Jimi, grew up in the Central District and attended Garfield High School, the same high school as Quincy Jones. Two young to play in the clubs, Hendrix and his crew will play in recreational halls in locations like the Yesler Terrace Projects. The next time you're in Seattle, you can check out Jimi Hendrix Park at 2400 South Massachusetts Street. Before he was known as Kenny G, Kenny Gorilik was a graduate of Franklin High School and played with the funk band Cold Bolden Together throughout the mid and late 70s. And even though he ain't making music in the 70s, shout out to Sir Mix a because I too like Big Butts. He grew up in the Central District on 19th and Yessler and reflects the Seattle sound. And speaking of the Seattle sound, let's get into the music. For my steppers... We have Turn Off the Phone by Epicenter featuring Bernadette Bassam, and I Want to Love by Seattle Pure Dynamite. For my Conspiracy Brothers, we have Somebody's Gonna Burn You by Cold Boat and Together. For my Slow Dancers, we have I Wanna Love You by Seattle Pure Dynamite. And Until the Real Thing Comes Along by The Black and White Affair. A great song for you and your boo to slow dance into the new year. The best breakup song goes to Nothing in Common by Braham and I Let a Good Man Go by Patronel Stanton Wright. Rev Pat Wright is known as Seattle's First Lady of Gospel and created the Total Experience Gospel Choir, a youth choir for the children of the Central District. Over 40 years strong, they've performed in over 30 states and 20 countries. And for a good day, we have Brighter Tomorrow by Soul Swingers and Don't Give Up by Robbie Hill's Family Affair. Robbie Hill started the family affair at 16, with his brothers Kenny and Will. He was a drummer and band leader coming out of the now closed Pacific High School on the corner of 12th and Jefferson. Hill's parents owned the Hills Brothers Barbecue Place located on 21st and Cherry. Opening in 1952, the name was changed to the Williams Family Barbecue, honoring the next generation of pitmasters. The Hill family is truly emblematic of the richness of black Seattle. Serving food and funk, They're a reminder that you can never tell the story of Seattle without the Central District. And that's Thank with DJ Tequesta. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at DJ Tequesta to check out our newest content and find links to our music playlists. And that's DJ Tequesta. You can find the music playlist in the show notes or search DJ Tequesta on Spotify and YouTube. Each playlist features tracks that showcase the local sound diversity of each funk scene remember to give us five stars on the ratings and even a review if you're feeling funky enjoy the music till next time and remember breathe and listen to funk skies are a part of life. sunny days are rare in sight when I you, my son-